0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and I want you guys to read for me. It's 12 long verses, but I got faith and confidence in you that you are going to read strong from 1 to 12 in the name of Jesus. Amen. That includes you too, Steve. Amen. All right. Y'all ready? Read. Okay. Come on, saints. Pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious, wonderful opportunity, God, to come together, God, to gather together to worship you, God, to study what you've written to us, Father. We pray today that we would be better for it. Lord, we pray that we will be a community of people who live in community together, God, that, that go out into the world, Father, that preaches the good news, God, to bring people into your marvelous light. And so, Father, I pray today that you would infuse us with strength, God, that you would give us supernatural wisdom in every area of our lives, God. Lord, Lord, strengthen us where we are weak this morning, Father. I pray, Lord, that your son Jesus would be lifted up this morning, Father. I pray that we would see him in all of his glory this morning as we study your word and so father we just give you honor and glory lord we don't take it for granted that we can come in and worship you freely lord and so father i pray today god that we would not just listen and hear the sermon but that we will fully engage all of our senses this morning father your word says that everything that have breath should praise the lord and so father we do that even while the message is being preached father and so lord i pray that the spirit of god would connect with us father that that it would lead us guide us convict us us encourage us father and it would we'll renew our minds this morning lord and so father we give you glory we give you honor it's in jesus name we pray and the people of god said amen amen, amen. you may be seated my sermon title this morning is Liv- living on mission living on mission the very faith that caused me to get my job ultimately has cost me my job. The very faith that caused me to get my job ultimately has cost me my job. This morning, I want to introduce you to the story of Kelvin Cochran. Kelvin Cochran is the former fire chief for the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Cochran, a 30 year fire veteran, is one of the most decorated firemen in America. He served as the U.S. Fire Administrator under President Barack Obama. However, in November of 2014, Kelvin Cochran was suspended without pay for 30 days, pending an investigation. At the center of the investigation in what eventually caused a storm of controversy, was a 2013 men's Bible study and devotional that Cochran wrote on his personal time while he was employed by the city of Atlanta. During the investigation, it was determined by the city that Cochran had not discriminated against anyone. Even still, without just cause, Cochran was fired by the city of Atlanta in January of 2015. What got Cochran fired was a small portion of the devotional book that only mentioned in a few lines that all sex outside of marriage, including homosexuality, is counter to biblical teaching. It was those brief sentences that got Cochran investigated and ultimately fired from his post as the fire fire chief of the city of Atlanta. City councilman at the time, Alex Wan, that led the charge to get Cochran fired, stated that I respect each individual's right to have their own thoughts, beliefs and opinions. But when you're a city employee and those thoughts, beliefs and opinions are different from the city's, you have to check your beliefs at the door. Atlanta mayor at the time, Kasim Reed, stated in an article in the USA Today that the material in Chief Cochran's book is not representative of my personal beliefs and is inconsistent with the administration's work to make Atlanta a more welcoming city for all citizens. And by Cochran's own admission, he lost his childhood dream profession as a firefighter. But the very faith that caused him to get his job was ultimately the same thing that cost him his job. You see, when we as Christians think about persecution, we think about foreign countries, and we think about house churches, and we think about underground churches, where people can't freely open and carry their Bible, or people can't pray in public, or people can't tell you that they worship Jesus Christ, and they are, 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 have, are under, live under the threat of death or persecution if people find out that they are Christians. But I want to give you the actual definition of persecution, which may or may not include death or the threat of death, but by definition, Persecution is when you harass someone, especially for what they believe. And so we as Christians cannot be naive to think that just because we live in America and at once upon a time, Christianity was the dominant religion of our culture, that now we get to live free of persecution for what we believe about Jesus Christ. So as believers, we live by a different set of priorities, beliefs, values and allegiances, which happens to create tension and conflict for us in this world. But please don't lose heart. It was Jesus who said in Mark 13 that you will be hated all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And So for you as a believer, a godless society can be expected to reject Christians for the same reason that they rejected Jesus. So Paul writes this letter to what the Bible calls exiles. Exiles essentially refers to people living in a region that is not their permanent place of residence. They are temporary residents traveling through a certain place. They're, they're pilgrims, pilgrims of a sort. And so in this particular letter, Paul, or not Paul, but Peter is writing to Gentile Christians, people who are not Jewish, but they are Gentile Christians and they are living in a place that they are not from and are being oppressed because of what they believe. These saints have been scattered to an area called Asia Minor. You know it on your map today as Turkey. And so in this geographical era, uh, area that Paul writes them to, it extends from an area somewhat like southwest Texas all the way through California. So there are millions of people that are in this area. And so Paul writes them a letter because they've been taken from their homeland and now they live in a place that is not familiar to them. You see, this is not some strange thing to anybody who's familiar with Old Testament narrative. In the Old Testament, God's people were exiled and suffered at a time when they were evicted from their homeland by opposing forces. But back then they were exiled because of their rebellion against God and because of their disobedience. That's why they were exiled and taken to a different place. But we suffer not because of disobedience, but we suffer in spite of our obedience to Christ. And so they were taken away because they disobeyed Christ. They were treated as exiles because of their rebellion and disobedience. But we today who live after the cross and after the resurrection, we are exiles because of our obedience. And because we obey God, we are treated as exiles in a place that we might even be from. And so we are exiles because we suffer for our faith in a world that finds our faith strange, hostile and sometimes downright repugnant. And so these Christians are possibly dealing with the threat of death, but more than that, they're dealing with social alienation. They are being ostracized for what they believe. Our biblical worldview and our approach to life makes us all as believers exiles in this world. Well, if we're exiles, where are we actually from? Our hope is anchored in our homeland, which actually is heaven. You live in Orlando, but your real home is actually in heaven with God. And so although we live in a world, we are not of this world. We have been born again. We are new a new creation and we are new creatures in Christ. And so Paul is writing to them because they can't leave. They, they have to live in the world, but they believe what they believe. So how do you deal with this hostility that I am who I am, but I live in a world that is hostile to what I say I believe? And so the purpose of this letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the world. I think it's interesting that Peter writes this and I think that there is no better person to write about the idea and the tension of standing for what you believe even when it might cost you something. Now we should remember that Peter, the writer Peter, this is the same Peter, if you've read the gospels, that at times he fought to defend Jesus. He fought to defend Jesus. That There was a time where Peter actually took out his sword and cut a brother's ear off. Jesus got to go on the ground, pick up dude's ear and put him back on. P- Peter, Peter, Peter is a rider for Jesus. Peter is the most outspoken of all of Jesus's disciples. This is a Peter who ride for Jesus. But at the same time, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus When Jesus was arrested because in a moment of outside pressure, he had to make a decision. Do I own up to knowing the Messiah and risk my life or do I save my own life and my own reputation and my job in this moment of truth? And so this is the same Peter who had to live in this tension. Have you ever had to live in a place of tension where you've got to decide I'm going to follow after what I believe or I'm going to go with the game? And so Peter is all too familiar with this, but if you read the story when they came and asked, hey, yo, that's the dude Peter. He kicks it with that dude Jesus. That looks just like that Galilean Peter. Are you the same Peter that's been kicking it with Jesus? Because I don't even know nobody named Jesus. I've never met anybody named Jesus in my life. Peter lived by, Peter's like, I don't know nothing about nothing. I don't know nobody. Jesus who? We shouldn't laugh at Peter. He failed in a moment, like many times we as believers fail to stake our claim as believers in the culture, or at your job, or at school, in the classroom, or in your neighborhood or around your friends. You see, your life may not be threatened, but if your ass, or if your pressure is put on you or somebody asks you a question, you might back down. And that's the same thing as Peter was doing: denying Jesus. But the beautiful thing that I love about Jesus is that Jesus died. His homeboy has deserted him. Jesus is on the cross. Jesus dies. The good news is that Jesus rose from the grave. And so after Jesus rose, he came around to hang out with his homeboys again. And guess who he had a face-to-face meeting with? If you read John 21, he has a face-to-face meeting with the same Peter who just denied him. Can you imagine if you was with your homeboy and your homegirl and somebody came to fight and then they acted like they didn't know you and you got beat up and they ran off and you saw them again next time they stopped answering your phone calls and they stopped answering your text and you ran at, you ran at them at the gas station? How is that conversation going to go? And what if they come up to you and try to talk to you like nothing happened? You're going to be like, these... People ain't loyal. Get that tune out your head. But after Jesus' resurrection, he has a conversation with Peter. And by the grace of God, he doesn't throw his friend away. He restores Peter. So there's hope for you and I. All the times we've denied Jesus, all the times we've had an opportunity to stand for what we believe in. We back down because of capitulation to pressure. Whether it was your job or if it was your friends or you had to make a decision or it was going to risk you not fitting in anymore. We've all had that moment where we back down on what we believe in. Here Jesus is rest- restoring the same person that denied him at his moment of truth. So there's hope for you and I. But as we see this letter, this is years later. This ain't the same old Peter Because in your Christian journey, you should get better and wiser as you get older. And so we're listening today. We're reading the writing of an older, wiser apostle Peter who is addressing Christians years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are facing persecution and their relationship with Jesus is at risk because they could die for it. And so he wants to stand there and encourage them. One would think that the Christian life would bring a certain measure of ease. I mean, Lord Jesus, I'm following you. Can it get easy at some point? Can I get a break sometime, Jesus? We would think that there would be a measure of ease and freedom from hard times, but as we look at the scriptures, we see that there were not many times in the life of God's people that they enjoyed external uninterrupted tranquility. It's fine for you to want that, but wisdom should tell you The longing for you, the longing for that should let you know that there is a greater reality called heaven when that will come true. But in the meantime, you live here on earth. And so there is sin in this world. So we can't get the kind of peace that our hearts long for. And so, however, when we do read about God's people, we do see them not without persecution, not without challenges, but we see them finding peace and joy in spite of their trials and suffering. We see them finding joy in spite of. And so the Christian life oftentimes make us ask the question, why do we suffer? Why do I feel out of place at times at home, at my job, around my family or at school? Why do I feel out of place at times? Well, the Apostle Peter answers this question in the first two verses. If you got a Bible, I hope you do. Read with me the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I want you to notice a key word. If you're taking notes in your Bible. There's something that I want you to circle in your Bible. It's going to come up twice. Here's what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen. You should circle that in your Bible. You should highlight that. To those chosen. Here's what he says. Living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here's what he says again before verse 2. Chosen. Circle that. Chosen. Chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you chosen. He says that they are chosen. It is to say that where they are and what is happening to them is not by accident, but instead is God's plan. Have you ever thought that the place that you feel out of place of ain't an accident, but that's God's plan for your life? Why do we think when we think of God's plan, we think of somewhere where there won't be no problems? What's God's plan for my life? What you're saying is, God, I'm dissatisfied where I am. I think there's a place where I will not have no problems. And so he says that they're chosen, that, that this should bring them great comfort, that if they are chosen by God, then God sees the beginning from the end. If you know that you've been chosen by God and everything in your life is not an accident or not happenstance, we actually are chosen for salvation, that God initiated our salvation with Him. We are chosen by God and given a purpose by God. Our place in a hostile world as believers is a part of God's plan since the beginning. This should help us not to doubt God's goodness, but to look at God's goodness and see His faithfulness. That if I'm here, if God planned out my salvation, if God called me, if God brought me into His marvelous life, if God took me from death, to life, then surely God has a plan for my life and my life is not an accident and where I am is not an accident. God wants to use me right where I am. And so he says that they've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father to the foreknowledge, not that God knew something about you, that God had some casual knowledge that you existed, but it means that God actually set his affections on you and his favor on you before you even knew God was there. Can you imagine that God actually loved you before you even knew his existence? That that God set his affections on you, that God saw enough in you to create you, that you are his chosen and special vessel, that he set you apart. You know how you knew that God chose you because the spirit made you alive. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the Spirit took you from death to life, opened your eyes, and enabled you to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. When you responded, you know what happened to you? You got covered. You got washed in the blood of Jesus. You were forgiven. You now had a new life, a new name, a new way of seeing things. He covered you in the blood of Jesus. No matter what you did in your past, the sin was covered by the blood of Jesus. And so that meant that you now had a new relationship with God that could be uninterrupted. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing that God has staked his claim on your life. And because of that, now you live for him and you live distinctively different than the people that are around you. That's what we're talking about next week. Living distinctively different from everyone around us. So we have been chosen by God for the sole purpose of obeying God. I want you to notice something there. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. Through the sanctifying work of the spirit to be obedient, frequent with the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see who just showed up in verses one through two? You see the father, you see the spirit and you see the son, you see the Trinity working together on your behalf. That's beautiful. They all serve a different function and they all have served to get you where you are and have a relationship with Jesus. And so the Trinity functions together in our salvation. And you know why he's doing this? It's all because of God's grace, not because of your goodness. And so what is my response when I know I don't deserve to be saved, but God saved me anyway? What what do I know when I know in my real life that I'm a trip and I'm actually crazy and I'm actually sinful, more sinful than the people at church know about? What do I do and how do I respond to a God that still loves me? I praise God for it. And so I said all that to say this, if God has chosen you, God will keep you right where you are. And here's what he says in verse three through five, bless be." The God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And all he's saying is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus changed Everything, the most important thing that ever happened in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus does not get out of that grave, he's just another man. But because he got out of the grave, that is proof positive that God received what he gave God, which was his life, and God raised him to life so that you and I could have eternal life. And so the resurrection changes everything and it gives us a new life. But not only does it give us a new life, it gives us a new hope. Why do I need new hope? New hope tells me that even if my life is hard, even if I'm sitting at my desk someday at my job and I think I'm about to die or I'm about to kill somebody, I know that God has better for me, that there's a hope that I can look past what I'm suffering right now and look to a future hope, a future salvation, that there is more to come, that that this is just a temporary stop for where I am, but God is going to use this. And if Jesus got up out of the grave and defeated death, so will I. So will I. And so God has given us an inheritance. It's an inheritance. He's given us this inheritance, which is our salvation. He says, I'm keeping it in heaven for you. No no matter what this world gives us or what we're able to attain on our own, the best thing that we have in this life is life with Christ. The best thing that you have is your relationship with Jesus. Wait a minute, pastor. The best thing I have is my spouse. No, the best thing that you have is Jesus. The best thing that I have is this job that I just got. No, the best thing that you have is Jesus. Your spouse is going to get a little older. Your spouse in 10 years ain't going to look like the deal when you first met him. Your spouse might change up on you. Guess what doesn't change? Jesus. Your boss likes you today. Remember the interview? Six months later. Is the relationship still the same? Oh, I like my like my uh, my cube, mate. Do you still? Six months later. Oh, he's cool to go hang out lunch with. Is he still? Things change. People changes. But God doesn't. He stays the same. And so we cannot lose the most. That's beautiful that he is saying we cannot lose the most important thing that we have, which is our relationship with God. It is being guarded by the power of God. God, see, when we think about protection, God protects us, but it doesn't mean that we won't have unfortunate events happen in this life. Because people will ask the question, well, why wasn't God protecting us? It doesn't mean that we won't have unfortunate events, but ultimately the most valuable thing is actually being guarded by God, which is the salvation of your soul. So even if something tragic happens to you, what it can't take away from you is your salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we should hear this and be encouraged that God will preserve our faith through suffering and the hardness of life. We, we can lose jobs, friends, homes, social status, but the one thing that is our greatest gain is the same thing which will never be lost, which is our relationship with God. Everything in this world will be destroyed, but our inheritance from God is indestructible. We cannot lose it. This living hope has been given to us as an inheritance, something that is reserved to be handed out in its completion at a later time, sometimes with stipulations determined by, so in an inheritance, if a person get an inheritance, there are some stipulations once the person who wrote the inheritance dies. The, the, he's called the testator or she's called the testator, the person who actually wrote the inheritance or wrote the will that the inheritance is in. That, that person typically can have some stipulations about how the inheritance is to be received or how it's to be divvied out. Um, let me use a natural example. I have a favorite show on TV that I will not name. Uh, Recently, it it just went off the air. My heart is broken. I don't know what I'm going to do with my Sunday nights. Um, But in there, there's a wise old man by the name of James St. Patrick who died. And I refuse him to call anything because he's James St. Patrick. A good man who who died and left an inheritance for his family, all except for his wife, Tasha. Tasha. Spoiler alert. But however, James or Jamie or Ghost, he did not even an inheritance, however, for his son. Now, his son is the worst character on, on tel- cable television. His son's name is Tyreek. I mean, if you see him in the mall, you got to do something to him. But he left a stipulation that his son, Tyreek got the inheritance. But there were some stipulations there. And you see, if you know the show, then you know that's a problem for Tyreek, Because James, his father, wants Tyreek to go to college and finish and get his degree. And so he can't give the inheritance unless he goes to college. The problem is, Tyreek don't want to go to college. Tyreek wants to do other illegal activities. I don't know where he gets this from, but he does. And so here you have a son who has to go to college to get the inheritance but he also wants to be in the street. But, but, but there is something about us that is just like Tariq. You see, we want all that God has for us, but sometimes we want to do a different thing. And so God says, I got some stipulations on this inheritance. I got some stipulations around it, but you know what I notice about the human person, a human person, here's what we'll do. We'll say that if the, if the, If the prize is valuable enough for us, if it's the promise is good enough for us at the end, we will be willing to do some things that we may not think we are capable of doing. And we'll be willing to endure some stuff that we wouldn't typically endure if we knew that there's a great prize at the end. And so I need to tell you this today, suffering is much more bearable if I know that there is an end to it, and at the end there's something greater and something sweeter at the end for it. And what I'm telling you today is no matter where you are in your life, or no matter how hard it gets in this season of your life. If you just hold on, there's a promise and an inheritance for you at the end, but you gotta hold on to it. And everything that we're going through now is nothing. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, for our light momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable inter- eternal way of glory. Here's what Paul is saying, that no matter what you're going through now, it's going to pale in comparison to the joy that God is going to bring when he returns. It's going to make your pain today feel like it was absolutely nothing. And so you gotta hold on to Jesus. I hope it's not just now, but it's a future hope. He says that it will be revealed in the last time. Our present life and faith in God today must be informed and energized by the thing that we have yet to see. And so for us as Christians, we live in between the not yet, but the already. I'm already saved but not how I'm gonna be saved. I'm already sanctified, but not how I'm gonna be completely sanctified. I experience some of God's blessing now, but not how I'm gonna experience when Jesus comes back. And so we live between this tension of the not yet, but already. So our salvation is complete, but not completely. And so, knowing that about the future, we as believers should have more hope than any other group in the world, because our hope is living. Because our Savior I actually got out of the grave. Buddha, dead. Muhammad dead. But Jesus is yet alive. That's all the hope that you need. And so that should be a cause for us to respond in a certain way. Here's what Peter said, verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9, here's what he says. He says, you rejoice in this. You rejoice in this in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Here's why. So that the proven character of your faith. More valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire. Here's what your praise and here's what your life and here's what your character is going to do. It's going to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what Peter is doing right now is calling on us on how we should respond to trials. And what Peter's is saying is, our response to our trials should be to rejoice. I know that feels weird. I know that feels strange. I know it sounds strange. This is not to say that we pray for trials. Lord, let my car break down. Lord, I'm praying today that I walk in, I get fired. You know what? Never mind. Because some of y'all don't pray to be fired before. Lord, collective unemployment has got to be better than this. <laughs> you felt like that before. But that's not what he's saying. It is to say that we know the trials are coming and we must be decided in our response before they actually happen. That I already know when trials come to my life, how I'm going to respond to it. And so it does not say we are to enjoy suffering. It is to say we rejoice in suffering. Let me say that again. It's not to say we are to enjoy suffering. It is to say we rejoice in suffering. When was the last time you felt pressure or opposition and you started thanking God for it? When's the last time something unfortunate happens and you did a praise dance? Some of y'all don't do a praise dance when good things happen. When's the last time life got tight? And you said, Lord, thank you, Jesus. I don't know what's happening but I know you're behind it, God, and I thank you. When's the last time someone told you that they weren't interested in you and you said, Lord, I thank you? You should. (laughs) When's the last time you you applied for a job knowing that you needed a job because you needed the money and you didn't get it and you said, Lord, I thank you? When's the last time something that you didn't expect to see come and happen to you and your response was, God, I thank you? And Peter's saying, This is what your response should be. And so I want to give you four reasons on why we can respond with rejoicing in our trials. Four reasons on why we can respond with rejoicing to our trials. I want to give you four reasons. Reason number one that we can rejoice in trials is this. We can rejoice and hope during trials because we know that they won't last forever. That's number one. We know there is an end near and it makes the presence of pain bearable. Point number one, we can rejoice in hope during trials because we know they won't last forever. Number two, we can rejoice in hope during trials because trials give us an opportunity to prove our faith is real. This is important. Point number two, we can rejoice in hope during trials because trials give us an opportunity to prove our faith is real. Did you just say my trials are an opportunity? Yes, I did. If we can be led by the Spirit, our first response to persecution, opposition, or trial that is brought about to our lives should not be to panic, but to rejoice at the opportunity to prove that my faith is real. How will you know that your faith is real if you never have to prove it? Anybody can say they love Jesus when everything is going right. Anybody can run down to the altar after a Saturday night of clubbing and wrongdoing and they need their guilt to be washed away from them. But can you love Jesus after you go through something? And so here's what happens. Our trials prove, give us an opportunity to prove the genuineness of our faith. We don't know our faith is genuine until we're put in circumstances and we have to make a decision to stand by what we believe. Have you ever been asked a question about your faith and you didn't know the answers? So you back down from a person who's atheist? Or black Hebrew Israelite? And he was just like, I'm going to avoid this. I'm going to avoid it. But do you know that you undermined the power of the Holy Spirit to be with you? That you could have walked right into that. And although you may not have had the right words, you could have leaned on the Holy Spirit and he could have gave you the right words. Have you ever had a time where your faith was tested at your job? Or There was a group of people and you were thinking, I kind of like being around these people, but I also kind of know I'm a Christian. But I'm going to kick it with them anyway. And so I'm hanging around people that do and say anything, and they don't even know I'm a Christian. They know I go to church, but they don't know I'm a believer. But God sometimes will put you in a place to give you an opportunity to prove that your faith is real. You know, you know, you know that your faith is real when you lose everything and you still can praise God. You know, you still love Jesus when you don't have a job and you still call him your provider. You know that you love Jesus and you prove that it's real. If you're sick and the doctors can't find an answer and the pain will go away and you still call him your healer. You know that your faith is real. When you run out of money for school, but you say, you know what, I'm going to stay in Orlando and work a part-time job because I got faith that God is going to put me back where I need to be. You, you know that your faith is real when somebody in your family call you out your name and you know everything about them and you know their whole story and you can tear their whole life apart and you choose to say nothing and you say bless you anyway. That proves that your faith is real. And so God gives us these opportunities to prove our faith. Trials prove whether or not our faith is real. Point number three, we can rejoice in trials because our trials refine our faith. We can rejoice in trials because trials refine our faith. We can rejoice in trials because trials refine our faith. faith. Here's what it says in verse 7 so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by. Fire. Do you know that the way that gold is melted down, for it has to be melted down in order for it to be valuable, like we see it in the stores, that they have to melt it down, and the fire purifies the gold and burns away the dross and the waste from the gold, and so when you see it, you see a product that has been refined by fire, that's why it looks so shiny, but do you know it had a bunch of mess and a bunch of waste and a bunch of junk on it before you purchased it? And so... We all know how valuable gold is, but do you know that your faith is more valuable than one of the most precious commodities in the world, which is gold? That your faith is worth more than that? And that means that, that if your faith is valuable than, that more valuable than gold, your faith also has to go through a refining process at times in your life. And so here's the thing. Our faith goes through these things, but it's not to kill us. It's to burn away things that don't need to be there. Trials will burn away bad attitudes. Trials will knock pride, slap off your life. But how can that happen if we avoid it? As soon as the fire gets turned on in our life, we start running and we look for a way out. How can my faith be made more beautiful unless the trials of life drive me closer to God, and through the Holy Spirit, it works on me and shows me through my response to trials the area that I need to get closer to Jesus in. Have you ever been put in a situation, and you respond in a certain way, and then while you driving home, or the next day you wake up, you're like, ah, oh, ah, oh, why I said that? Oh, man, what was I thinking, Jesus? Oh, I shouldn't have said it. Oh, I gave him all the words. Oh, man. Even know I could cuss like that, Jesus, I ran down to cuss in the cussing alphabet. Oh, Jesus, Lord, forgive me, Father. You ever had that happen to you? Oh, my attitude was wrong. Oh, my attitude was off. Lord, I, Lord, forgive me. And that's cool because you recognize it. The conviction set in. That's a good sign that the Holy Spirit is in you. But the next growth, the next step in growth in the refiner's fire is that now I got to go back to the person. You know how I just cussed you out like a dog from A to Z yesterday? I know you don't got a name left, and I gave you about 45 names yesterday. I call you everything except for a child of God. I talked about you and your mama. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I know better than that. I'm a Christian. Would you please forgive me? I repent. I ask God for forgiveness. Now I'm asking you for forgiveness. Would you forgive me? But some of us stay a step here. Lord, I messed up. Then you see your homeboy, you're like, what's up, player? (laughs) Cuss me out. You just did that yesterday. But the refiner's fire says, I got to apologize. I, I got to knock this spirit of, of, of not asking for forgiveness off. I got to put my pride aside and I got to tell the person I'm sorry. I got to go back and make something right that I did wrong. Yeah. That's the refiner's fire. That there are certain things about us, certain attitudes that it has to burn away off of us. And so our suffering trials are not a sign that God has betrayed us or that he's no longer with us. But our suffering is a sign of our fellowship with God. It tells us to keep trusting God. You know that in a trial you can't do it on your own. That's the point of the whole thing. That's the whole message of the gospel. We can't get it right by ourselves. We need Jesus to do it. I need Jesus to prompt me to ask for forgiveness. I need Jesus to allow me to have some self-control so the next time I don't give them the cussing alphabets. I need Jesus for that. I need Jesus for the next time the flesh gets a little, little too weak. You need Jesus for that. We can't do it on our own. And so when we fall short, it should let us know that we need a Savior. It should drive us to the cross. We need Jesus. Point number four, and I'm almost done. Here's what it says. We can rejoice in our trials because they bring praise, glory and honor to God. We can rejoice in our trials because they bring praise, glory and honor to God. Your trials and your good response in them brings glory to God, that that he is glorified when you respond to your trials in the right way, that God is pleased when you respond rightly when things are going on in your life. That, that God is praised and glorified, that he gets the glory from your life, that although your life is not the way you want it to be, you respond in a way that is pleasing to God. That brings him glory. And I don't know about you, but I want to please God in my life, even through trials. There is suffering now, but there is glory for us to follow. Jesus suffered first, then he entered into his father's glory. The path to glory 1st must go down the road of suffering. And that's not to say that we desire suffering and we want to go through pain and we want to be hurt. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that when it comes, we go through it in the right way, that we respond in the right manner. Here's what it says in verses eight through nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. Do you know that we love Jesus? Have you ever thought about this? We as I can see how it sounds crazy to the world. We love somebody we ain't never seen before. Right? We, we, lo- we love the Messiah, but we ain't never seen him. But we see evidence of him. We see evidence of God all over the place. But, but, but it says that we that, that, that though not seeing now you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And so our lives should be marked by joy and love for Jesus because of what lies ahead. And so where does my joy come from, Pastor? It comes from knowing that this life is temporary and there's something better on the other side. We live in a day and age where one of our idols is comfort. But the previous, previous generations, the generation before our parents' generation, there wasn't much comfort for them. They had to hold out hope for the better and by and by. We want our best life today. We want it now. They knew that wasn't a reality for them. They knew that my best life ain't now. My best life is later. And we should adopt that same mindset. That's not to say that we are detached from the world. We actually engage with the world, but our hope is in heaven. And so we respond with joy because we know what awaits us at the end of this life. It is a special thing that we have. Here's what he says in the last two verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that will come to you. They searched and carefully investigated. I want you to think about Isaiah. I want you to think about Jeremiah. I want you to think about all the Old Testament prophets that we read about. They searched and investigated about the times that we live in. They they inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels Long to catch a glimpse of the things of these things. And what he's saying is this. The Old Testament prophets, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit was showing them something that was to come. They knew that it would be a Messiah that would suffer and die for the sins of his people. They knew that. They knew that. But they had to search and investigate when and how And they longed to live in the time. They were like, man, we know that there's a a, a salvation out there for us. We know that there's a Messiah for us. We know that there's a Messiah that is going to come and save his people. We wish he would come now, but he didn't. Do you know what it's like or what it would be like to see the very thing that you need that is a matter of life and death to you? If you can see it with your eyes, but you know you can't get to it. You're sick, hurt, bleeding, about to die, and you see the hospital right down the road, but you can't get to it. Traffic is blocked off. You know the hospital is there. You you need to get there, but you can't get to it. Let me make it more real for you. You're close to home. You got to pee real bad. But traffic is backed up. And sometimes the only hope you've got to hold it on is knowing that home is right around the corner. That's real. Y'all know it's real. You ever been there? You'd be like, oh, man. Why is traffic today, God? But there's hope because home is near. But can you imagine that you can't get to it because traffic is blocked off, that you won't be able to make it in time, but you, see, you have the hope, it's real, it's tangible, you know it's there. And the way you're going is blocked off, but you see all these cars that come later behind you, and the lanes they're in is flowing freely, and they can get there freely. And you wonder what it's like for them to be able to go into the house and have all the relief in the world. Man, I wonder what that's like. And that's the way the prophets felt. And the prophets would probably be disappointed. They would be heartbroken if they knew the people that actually could get there didn't appreciate being being able to get there. It says even the angels long at a glimpse that we we have a better uh, advantage than the angels in heaven. That they can't even experience the salvation of Jesus the way we do. But we take it for granted. The prophets wished they could see it. And all Peter is saying is this. That the least disciple of Christ Jesus is at a better advantage than the prophets and the angels. That this salvation we have is not to be taken lightly. But we should rejoice because of it. It is the salvation of our souls. That in Christ Jesus, we have the greatest thing that we could ever have, and we can't lose it. And so, when I have that knowledge and understanding, when I realize that, that God has chosen me, that He's called me, that He sanctified me, that I'm covered in the blood of Jesus that he's with me through my trials, that my trials serve a purpose in this life, then that makes my life much more bearable, that I can live on mission, that I can stand up for what I believe in, and even if it costs me my job, I still have Jesus. Living on mission. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today.